0: Very good. If you have your Bibles with you this evening, please turn in them to Amos 4. Amos 4, title of the sermon, Hard Hearts Lead to Hard Days. Last time we were together, we considered the connection between God's love for Israel and his chastening of them. It has been a little while uh, in time. Of course, if a person's listening uh, on the internet, then it's it's perhaps not been a long time since the last sermon. But for you who are live, it's been a little while since the last sermon in Amos. But last time we were together, uh, we were talking about the connection between God's love for Israel and God's chastening for Israel that it is implicit in God's care implicit in the reality of Israel's special place in God's heart that God would compel his own unto obedience even through hardship. Not because God enjoys levying upon His children hardship. It is not that God enjoys chastening His children. Indeed, uh, for those of you who are parents, you understand this well. You do not enjoy disciplining your children. You don't even necessarily enjoy the training process as you uh, see your child struggle and as he has to learn and he has to fail and he has to try again and he has to go through the pain and the frustration of that process of growth and development. But, as we understood from last time, God loves us too much not to seek to divert our path when we are wandering from Him. And I say us because this is not just an Old Testament principle as it related to Israel. We talked in just, a few, uh, just a few moments ago as it related to the Lord's table that we are not under the covenant that Old Testament Israel was under. They found themselves in a very different position as it related to the covenant that they were given. And yet we still serve the same God. And this same God, though under this different covenant, uh, compels us to recognize that when we wander from Him, when we, when we go astray, He will draw us back unto Himself. And this week we launch into what I might call tragic waters. We consider the end of that rebellious nation, the end of the rebellious child that is Israel, the inevitable result of a people who resisted the chastening hand of God and hardened himself to their rebellion. And in this, we, uh, we, we will receive a warning for ourselves. There are times where we become stubborn, hard-hearted to the things of the Lord, where we put our foot down, where we obstinately stand in the day when we ought to soften, when we ought to yield, when we ought to bow. And what we'll find in our time this evening, as we considered last time the Lord's chastening hand, we'll find in Amos 4 that the hard hearts of the nation of Israel was going to lead them into hard days. And indeed, it is no different for we who are in Christ that hard hearts lead to hard days. So we pick up in Amos chapter 4, verse 1, where the Bible says this, Hear this word, ye kind of Bashan, that are in the mountain of Samaria, which oppress the poor, which crush the needy, which say to their masters, Bring and let us drink. So this prophetic word begins with a very interesting twist, a very interesting delivery. Notice the object of this prophecy. He says, hear this word, ye kine of Bashan. Now, the word kine is uh, not one which we often hear anymore in modern English, but it actually is the plural form of the word cow in Old English. So we use the word cows now typically for the plural of cow, but if you were uh, around in 1769, the word kine would have served your purposes very well. Where you have one cow or you have two or more, Kine. So Amos is giving this prophecy to the kine of Bashan, which live in the mountains of Samaria. And that's kind of weird, right? I don't know. There's not too many instances in the Bible where you see Elijah, or you see Elisha, or you see uh, one of the prophets out there preaching to the cows. That's not really something that happens. Uh, and, and so when you say, okay, Amos is speaking to the kind of Bashan, you might envision him up on a hill talking to a herd of cows, and those cows are looking at him, chewing their cud, not knowing exactly what's going on. But that is not what we're dealing with here. He isn't prophesying to cows. The remainder of the verses, in fact, should quickly remove any question as to whether or not God is actually prophesying to cows. Cows don't oppress the poor, right? Cows, I suppose, could physically crush the needy. But in the context that we're dealing with, I don't think that's what we're dealing with. Recall what we said earlier in the series. That the kind of Bashan were considered some of the healthiest, strongest, Baddest and best cattle in all of Israel. The cream of the crop, if you will. Now carry this idea into a metaphorical context of which I hope you've, I hope you've carried it. I hope, I hope my sarcasm this evening has brought you into the place where you're comfortable with a metaphor. God speaks to those who are healthy, who are strong, who are fat. The powerful, the wealthy, the comfortable in the land. Combine this with what we already know from the prophecies of Amos 2 and 3. And it makes perfect sense that these prophecies go out to the wealthy and the powerful in Israel. Amos calls them the kind of Bashan. And particularly here, there's some who, who believe that it's specifically speaking to uh, the women. A kine is, in fact, a cow, right? A cow is a female bovine, contrasted with a bull, which is a male bovine. To this end, some believe God is speaking to the women of Israel, And this seems to make the most sense within the context, that as a subset of the people who were oppressing, the women of the land in particular used their position of luxury and of power to harm or to marginalize the vulnerable that were among them. So God thus reiterates their sin, speaking quite possibly to the women, to the wealthy women, the aristocratic women in Israel, those who... Uh, were in luxury and had power within the, the nation their oppression of the poor their crushing of the needy and then he says to these kine that they say to their masters, Bring and let us drink now in the picture of the kine, they seek to their master masters to make them fatter and more indulgent to give them the things that they desire, indicating That if the kind of Bashan, metaphorically here, are in fact the women, the wealthy women and the powerful women in Israel, then the idea of them seeking to their masters would be them seeking to their husbands or the men of the land to enable their wickedness and their oppression that they would seek to the, 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 their husbands, they would seek to the men of the land, and they would take from them all the more, not to help the needy and not to help the oppressed, but rather take from them all the more, seek to be enabled all the more, specifically so that they could continue their campaign of harming, of oppressing, of crushing the needy and the poor. And God's response to this is actually quite startling in its aggression. Look at verses 2 through 5 with me. The Lord God hath sworn by His holiness that, lo, the days shall come upon you, that He will take you away with hooks, and your posterity with fishhooks, and ye shall go out at the breaches, every cow, at that which is before her, and ye shall cast them into the palace, saith the Lord. Come to Bethel and transgress. At Gilgal, multiply transgressions and bring your sacrifices every morning and your tithes after three years and offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving with leaven and proclaim and publish the free offerings. For this liketh you, O ye children of Israel, saith the Lord God. God tells the people that he swears unto them in his holiness. In this... God invokes His holiness as the basis for His vow, indicating the profanity of their offenses against Him. There are many different ways that God might invoke His character as He gives a vow. But let's just put it this way. If God invokes His holiness right before a vow, you're probably in trouble. And God promises to them that the days that would come would be days where he would take them and their posterity away with what are called fishhooks. Now, it seems as though God is mixing metaphors here, right? He he begins with the kind of Bashan, and then he switches over to fishhooks. And I could not necessarily find any analog for kind being carried away with fishhooks. But the idea of being taken away with a fishhook would likely be that of a sudden and unavoidable catching away of the land. As you might do with a fish, where a fish is uh, uh, unassumingly uh, taking a bite of food. And then when they take that bite of food, when they are indulging themselves by eating of the food, they are suddenly caught and caught away and pulled away from what they were doing, pulled away from their indulgence, pulled away from their eating in an instant and dragged into another place or another uh, context. And no matter how hard they fight and no matter how hard they try, there's absolutely nothing they can do because they are caught, they are taken away. It might also imply that it will be in the luxuries themselves. It will be the the fatness itself. the indulgence itself that will be their downfall. That God will allow the indulgence itself to be the thing that catches them in their own indulgence and then drags them away into the place of destruction. And then God then falls back upon this idea of how kind are moved. So he talks about the fish hooks, but then we move back into this metaphor of cows themselves, saying that Uh, that that in that day, every cow, every kind, will run through the breach in the wall, one right after another, all the way to the palace, he says. From the least to the greatest, the people will be brought out of the cities and into the place of their enemies. Amos then assumes a sarcastic tone in verses 4 and 5. He tells them to come to Bethel and transgress, to multiply their transgressions in Gilgal. The idea is this. You've just heard a a declaration of your judgment, Israel. And Amos basically says, I know what you're going to do next. You're going to run to Bethel. You're going to run to Gilgal. Bethel was to northern Israel what Jerusalem was, or the temple, we might say at this time, was to southern Judah. Judah. It was the central seat of their pagan worship system. It was one of two places where Jeroboam set up that original golden calf in the days when they seceded from the southern tribes of Judah. The other calf was put in Dan. Gilgal was likewise a very important place of centralized worship in Israel. Gilgal was the place following the nation's entrance into Canaan where the nation kind of made their home base. It was the place where they pitched the tabernacle. It was the place where they circumcised the generation, the second generation, which had come out of Egypt. It's the place where they renewed the covenant in the days of Joshua, according to Joshua chapter 5. As a matter of fact, it's called Gilgal, specifically because it was the place, the, uh, the Bible says, where God rolled the burden of Egypt off of them. The word Gilgal literally meaning rolling or to roll. It was also this place where in the days of Samuel according to 1 Samuel chapter 11 verse 14 where the nation renewed the covenant. So Gilgal was a very very important spiritual place. Bethel was a very very important spiritual place. Spiritually important places for the nation even though the nation had at this point cast off much of what had made them distinct, much of the law, they still maintained this loyalty to his history, to tradition, and to their own religious system as perverted and corrupt as it was. But for all of these connections with these places, they did not go there to actually worship Jehovah. They went there to practice their idolatry, their mixed worship system, So God says, Amos says here, after having delivered to them this message of judgment, go to Bethel and transgress there. Because as they would go there and they would give their sacrifices as a means by which to appease the God of Amos, Amos says it will only be more transgression. He says, go to Gilgal And multiply your transgressions. That as you go to that place of Gilgal and you try to manipulate the Lord into not judging you because you're at Gilgal and you're at that place of the covenant where it was renewed, Amos says it will only serve to multiply your transgressions. He says, bring your sacrifices. Pay your tithes. Offer the sacrifices of thanksgiving. Though they do so with leaven. Reminding that these are not true sacrifices. These are not obedient sacrifices. He says, go to these places of your pagan idolatry and do your pagan sacrifices and pretend like you're worshiping Jehovah because you're doing it in His name, but all you're doing is multiplying unto yourself transgressions. And He says, at the end here of verse 5, it's quite, quite sarcastic. He says, go do all of those things, offer those sacrifices, offer them with leaven, because this is just like you. This is exactly what God expects God expects you to hear the judgment. God expects you to hear of what you have done wrong. God expects you to hear of the ways that you've fallen short. And it's just like you to go and to try to manipulate and to appease rather than to humble yourself. It's just like you to find another loophole. It's just like you to find another angle rather than to simply do right, rather than to repent. And God help that this attitude and disposition would not once be named among us. God help that we would not be like Israel in her day, where we have the trappings of our religious devotion modified to fit us rather than fitting ourselves into God's commandments. And then we convince ourselves that we are right with God because we are at least doing something. God forbid that we should come to the church in sin. God forbid that we should come to the church and sin. God forbid that we should uh, engage in a false worship, a proud worship, but then believe that because of the proud worship within which we are engaged, that somehow that is going to make it all right to all of the other things that we're doing against the Lord. God forbid that we should array ourselves in the veneer of religious devotion while living lives of idolatry or immorality, of sinful indulgence, of selfishness, of pride, and the like. May God never be able to say of us, You go ahead and do those things. You multiply transgressions. It sounds just like you. God then proceeds to recount to the nations all the things which He has done to get their attention and to draw them back to Himself. And this is fascinating, too. So God makes this announcement of judgment through Amos. And God says, I know exactly what you're going to do, you're going to justify yourself. And just to make sure that you've covered all your bases, you're going to go and you're going to give a, a, a lip service to worship, but it's going to be a false worship. It's just like you to do it. You're going to give your sacrifices of thanksgiving, but you're going to bring them with leaven. It's just like you to do it. But this is the end of a long string of offenses against the Lord, where God has seen this again and again and again. And this long string we find in verses 6 through 11. Notice what it says. God says, And I also have given you cleanness of teeth in all your cities, and want of bread in all your places. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. And also I have withholden the rain from you, when there were yet three months to the harvest. And I have caused it to rain upon one city, and caused it not to rain upon another city. One piece was rained upon, and... The peace whereupon it rained, not, uh, it, it rained, not withered. So two or three cities wandered into one city to drink water, but they were not satisfied. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have smitten you with blasting mildew when your gardens and your vineyards and your fig trees and your olive trees increased. The palmer worm devoured them. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have sent among you the pestilence after the manner of Egypt. Your younger men have I slain with the sword, and have taken away your horses, and I have made the stink of your camps to come up unto your nostrils. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord. I have overthrown some of you, as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and ye were as in firebrand plucked out of the burning. Yet have ye not returned unto me, saith the Lord." So God walks through a list of things that he has done, of judgments that God has levied against them for their transgressions. In verse 6, God first says that he gave them cleanness of teeth and want of bread. The idea of cleanness of teeth is cleanness by virtue of having not chewed anything. Right? Famine, lack of food. Now, we would not necessarily expect that this would have been the days that Amos was living in. As a matter of fact, the days that Amos was living in at that time were days of relative prosperity. But rather, there was the time in the past. There was a time where God sought to get a hold of the nation to help them understand the condition within which they found themselves. And He sought to do so by allowing a famine in the land. And as they lacked the the basic necessities of life, God says, I was attempting to get your attention. And yet... In this time where I promised in the, in, in the law that you would never lack for bread if you followed me and there was a day that you lacked bread, you never stopped to say, am I not following God? Instead, you continued with your perverse worship system. Instead, you continued with your leaven. Instead, you continued with your, 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 your uh, uh, blasphemy and you never returned unto me. Verse 7, God says, he withheld rain for three months prior to the harvest because of this he says two or three cities had to merge into one city because one city would have rain and the others would not they'd have to go into one city to get their water and that city would become overcrowded and he says there still was not enough for everybody and yet even in this time of judgment where they had a drought where they did not have enough water something which should have indicated to them that there was something wrong between them and God God says you didn't return to me Verse 9, God says he smote them with a blasting and a mildew, so that palmer worms, which is uh, some kind of locust or some kind of caterpillar, destroyed the fig trees and the olive trees. So you have famine, you have drought, then you have pestilence. And one would think we're walking down the list of Deuteronomy curses. And at this point, they should start to realize that the Deuteronomy curses are hitting them pretty hard. And they go to Bethel and they go to Gilgal and they give their leavened sacrifices and they pay their tithes and they try to pacify the Lord and it's not working. And yet what they did not do, in spite of all of their religious notions, in spite of all of their religious talk, what they didn't do is they didn't return to God. And verse 10 describes all manner of pestilence and war. Young men slain with the sword, so much so that the camps of war stank with the smell of dead bodies. Yet another thing that God said would not happen if Israel maintained a proper relationship to the covenant. They would not fall before their enemies, and yet they had fallen greatly before their enemies. Yet they did not return to God. Then in verse 11, God says, He even overthrew some in the manner of Sodom and Gomorrah, Now, in the most literal sense, we we find no record necessarily of God raining fire and brimstone upon any of the, the people of Israel, although he says that they were, as a firebrand, plucked out of the burning. Perhaps it is that the reference here was not necessarily to the physical consequences of Sodom and Gomorrah as it relates to the fire and brimstone, but perhaps instead the physical consequences of the culture that has fallen into said perversity so that they were in a place where their culture was breaking down and they were in absolute cultural decay, very similar to what we find around us today because of the sins that defined Sodom and Gomorrah, the sins that have defined our culture even in this day. And yet for all of that breakdown of culture and civilization, God says, yet you returned not to me. And so God gives his conclusion in Amos chapter 12 verses 13, or excuse me, Amos four, verses 12 and 13. He says, "Therefore thus will I do unto thee, O Israel, and because I will do this unto thee, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. For lo, he that formeth the mountains and createth the wind and declareth unto man, what is his thought, and maketh the morning darkness and treadeth upon the high places of the earth, the Lord." The Lord God of hosts is His name. So God says, I've called. I've faithfully chastened. I've called you to repent. I've given you every opportunity and you've ignored me. And now I have my prophet Amos and he's crying out and he's calling you to stop oppressing the poor and the needy. And what you're going to do is what you always do. It's just like you. You're going to go to Bethel You're going to go to Gilgal and you're going to give your presumptuous offerings and you're going to make a show of some sort of something like repentance or at least of worship. And you're going to think that for your much speaking or you are going to think that for your money or you are going to think that even just for your presence there that that you will be brought in right standing with God. He says that's just like you, but that's not how it works. And so because of this, God says to the nation, Prepare to meet thy God. That the one who formed the mountains and the one who created the wind and the one who knows their thoughts and the one who makes the morning darkness and the one who treads on the high places of the earth, the one who is the Lord, He is holy. He sits upon the circle of the earth. He created you. He sustained you. The one that we talked about this morning who is called the Most High God. God says, Your your end is coming. Your destruction is coming. The time for mercy is over. The time for warnings is over. Now it is simply the time for judgment. And as God delivers His character and His attributes in verse 13, He makes it very clear that in this He will not be denied. One way or the other, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And effectively God is saying, you have not done it in this life, so now you can do it in the next. And that leads us to our application this evening. In Amos 3, we contemplated the unique relationship between God and His people, by which we are compelled to understand that God chastens and judges us because we are special to Him, because He loves us. And we think about that in theory. And I warn that God judges His people. But the primary focus was upon the reason for this, our unique relationship with God through redemption, and thus, because of our unique relationship with God through redemption, our chastening, the chastening that God brings upon us is not arbitrary. And this week, I would like us to consider this idea. Now, I told you way before my, my, my time away that I was going to be getting into Hebrews chapter 10, and we, we talked about it on a, in a Sunday school, and I said, I'm going to be, um, I, I'm I'm, uh, I'm jumping ahead a little bit, and I'm spoiling one of my sermons. Well, this is that sermon. It's been a little while, though. So we'll find our way back to Hebrews chapter 10 this evening, and I hope it won't feel um, redundant. So this week we consider the idea not from the standpoint of why God chastens us. We already know why God chastens us. He chastens us because we are a special people. He chastens us because He loves us. But the question is this, this evening not why God is chastening us or why God is willing to chasten us, but the question is what happens when we fail to listen? What happens when we become an obstinate child? What happens when we, having heard what God desires of us, knowing what God expects of us, what happens when we don't do it? Perhaps over these weeks you've heard these words, but you've thought, yeah, that isn't good news for Israel. But here's the thing. That's Israel, right? They had God's law. They offended God's law. They knew the consequences. They ignored the consequences. Thank God we're not under God's law. Thank God that I don't, I don't rest under the consequences of the law of Moses. But pastor, we have grace. Jesus paid for all of our sin. My sin is under the blood. God is not going to send locusts. He is not going to send plagues. He's not going to send famines upon me for my sin. He's not even going to crush me with a kind of Bashan. That's not how that works. And it's true. You are under grace. And it is true that neither we as believers in the church or we as Americans, by the way, are under promises of curses for our rebellion. We are not under a covenant of God as the church. We are not under the covenant of the law, nor are we under the covenant of the law as a nation. And yet this by no means implies that sin does not come without consequences. And we talked about that last time we were together. God will judge his people. In fact, according to 1 Peter, judgment must begin at the house of God. We looked last time we were together into Jesus' parable in Luke 12, if any of you remember back then, regarding the faithful and the unfaithful servants and the warnings therein. But this time, as I said, we're going to go to Hebrews 10 and we're going to up the ante a little bit. We're going to understand just what happens when God's people harden their hearts against God's Word. But I need to preface this with some context. Paul is speaking in Hebrews 10 as a primary theme in Hebrews about the superiority of the new covenant in Christ, the covenant that we considered when we partook in the Lord's Supper this evening, that had fundamentally changed humanity's relationship with God, the superiority of this new covenant in Christ to the old covenant that was in the law. And because there is this new arrangement, this fundamental change in humanity's relationship with God, it gives those who would come through Christ direct access to the presence of God through Christ's blood. And where Paul is going with that teaching is to teach us the implications of this great salvation by grace through faith. So we read in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, Having therefore, brethren, boldness And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. So because of this access that we have by grace, because of this idea that you are under grace, you are not under the law, because of this reality that you are under the new covenant, not the old covenant, because there is no need for a mediator any longer, because we have access to this new and living way, Paul says this, draw near. Draw near with full assurance of faith. Don't stay far away. Don't stand on the fringes of a relationship with God. You've been given access to His throne through His Spirit. Use it. Draw near. Second, he says, hold fast your profession of faith. Because what we have is worth holding on to. Because what we have is worth proclaiming. Because what we have is worth being faithful to. Our profession of faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our profession of faith that compels us to follow Him. Our profession of faith that compels us to walk in His footsteps. Hold fast to that obedience. Hold fast to Christ's character. Hold fast to love. Hold fast to humility. Hold fast to temperance. Hold fast to virtue. Hold fast to your profession of faith. And then finally, provoke one another to love and good works by assembling together and so much the more as you see the day approaching. This is the Christian life. This is what it looks like to be a believer. This is what you step into because you have stepped into Christ. That You have stepped into Christ without any merit of your own, without any obligation being placed upon you, but because of this position that you have in grace, do these things. Draw near, hold fast, Provoke one another unto love and good works. But some say this. I like that idea of redemption. I'll take that redemption through faith, but I, I don't want the life of faith. I, I want heaven, but, you know, I'm not really willing to do things God's way. Yes, 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 I understand Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but, but you're asking me for some other things. You're asking me for, 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 for submission You're asking me for virtue. And to that, God says, I'm sorry, it doesn't work that way. To have a relationship with Christ is to accept Christ's love. And Christ's love is not just about His provision or His sustaining power or His grace. It's about His chastening you unto your best good. It's about your sanctification. See, because the moment that you stepped into Christ, you stepped into a relationship by which Jesus Christ has promised and bowed by His own blood to finish the work He started in you, to bring about in you a process by which you will be sanctified and made into His image. And it, that can come in one of a couple of ways. It can come in a way of you submitting yourself to that, chaste, uh, to, to, to that, that, that conforming to His image, or it can come through chastening. One way or another, Jesus Christ is going to perform the work He's promised to perform in you. To this end, notice what Paul then warns in verses 26-31. For, for if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation, which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment, suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy, who hath trodden under foot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that hath said, Vengeance belongeth unto me, I will recompense, saith the Lord, and again the Lord shall judge his people." It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So here's the warning. If we, having been redeemed from sin, harden our hearts and step into willing, unrepentant, hard-hearted sin, step into a place where we are resisting the Lord as He seeks to sanctify us. If we, in the picture that is given in Amos, are the kine and the bulls of Bashan, We step into the fertile and the green lands of God's forgiveness and of God's grace and we live out of the extension of the favor that God has shown unto his children. And when we are well-fed and when we are comfortable and when we are cared for, we decide to throw ourselves into sin and selfishness and say, thank you, God, I'm very well now. Now I'll do things my own way. Now, of course, none of us say this, but neither did Israel, right? Israel didn't say that. How do we know that Israel didn't say that? Didn't say, God, thanks, but no thanks. Well, because of what Amos said. You're going to flee to Bethel. You're going to flee to Gilgal. You're going to pay those tithes. You're going to give those sacrifices and those thanksgivings. It's just like you to do it. So you're not sitting there this evening saying, yep, I'm a rebellious child. I know I'm a rebellious child. I'm going to stand in my rebellion. That's not you. You're, You're justifying yourself. You're you're placing in yourself all of the religious trappings that make, that, that, that dull your conscience to your rebellion. And so that's the picture here. But the warning is this. There is no second sacrifice for sin. There is no second crucifixion that can wipe the slate clean. When you first accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, there was a great cleansing of your heart that took place. When you were translated from death into life, when you were made a new creation in Christ, old things are passed away and all things are become new. But when you as a believer step back into those things out of which you have been redeemed, and maybe now they have a religious veneer to them, and maybe now they sound a lot better and look a lot better so that you can still look around at those that are around you and say, I'm still better than them but you step back into those places, those places of, uh, of, of, of sinfulness, of lack of virtue, of lack of integrity. Well, there's no second new creation, Christian. There's only at this point you. A new creation in Christ living in defiance of your character. Living in defiance of that, created, that, that which was created in you living outside of who you are in Christ. Now, there is only a certain fearful looking for of judgment, which will devour the adversaries. Now, am I saying this evening that that means you'll lose your salvation? That... That, that, that if you step back into sin after having accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, that's it for you. You're going to burn and you're going to spend eternity in damnation. No, that's not what I'm saying. The nature of salvation fundamentally denies the possibility of losing it once you have received it. There's nothing in the Bible about a new creation being unmade. There's nothing in the Bible about a, a, a born-again person becoming unborn. There's nothing in the Bible that even contemplates how that could possibly work. And it's not in the Bible because that's not how it works. But just because you are saved from eternal judgment does not mean you will not be judged at all, Christian. Much to the contrary. God chastens His children, right? And if in the days of Amos, the nation of Israel despised Moses' law and so so died without mercy under two or three witnesses, If in the days of Amos, God brought chastening and chastening and chastening and chastening, God would not relent in His call, His desire to call His people back to Himself. How much more, Christian, can we expect if we, as the people of God, who have been given the indwelling Holy Spirit, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, trodden under the foot of that grace that we have been placed under, how much sore loss can we expect before the throne? So that we see this warning in verse 30. The Lord shall judge his people. And at this point, perhaps we are all a little confused. We have the grace of God through Christ, by which all of my sins, past, present, and future, are paid for and forgiven. But we also have this warning of the judgment of God, by which I know that I will stand and I will give an account. The Lord will judge those who are not his people, but the Lord will also judge his people. And we know that this judgment is not the lake of fire, because that's what Jesus bought for me, right? Jesus paid for my redemption. So it's not the lake of fire. If I, having accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior, end up in the lake of fire, then God is not God. Then Jesus did nothing. (laughs) And we know that we aren't under a direct covenant by which we can expect locusts and plagues upon us, so we're not going to have a bunch of locusts in here. Now, we understand the possible judgment of darkness and confusion that comes to the believer. We could say that a part of this idea of judgment, we know that from, from Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that the wages of sin is death. And so we can understand the idea that when I sin, even as a believer, I am separated from God and I step into darkness and I do not see light. We spent a lot of time in First John on that, right? That if a person is not abiding in Christ, he's not abiding in the light. And if he's not abiding in light, he's abiding in darkness. And if he's abiding in darkness, then he cannot orient, orient himself rightly to truth. And because he cannot orient himself rightly to truth, he, he might think he's on the right path and think he is justified in what he's doing and think he is pleasing God, but he is not doing so because he abides in darkness and not in the light. And so we know that, and that's certainly a judgment that the Lord would bring. But we might liken that significantly more to the judgments earlier in Amos 4. To the plague, to the locust, to the, the, the famine, to the drought, right? To the little things that God brings into our lives that indicate to us there's something wrong to, to when, when you are not living out the fruit of the Spirit in your life and you're not realizing love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance, and you can't understand why. And when instead you are being overcome by carnality, being overcome by the works of the flesh which are manifest, adultery, fornication, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulation, wrath, strife, seditions. I got those way out of order, but they're all in there in Galatians 5. You can look them up. And such like. So they're not all in there, right? There's more. And so we might liken those to the smaller judgments leading up to warning about the great day. The day, as we see here, as we see in Amos 4, where we prepare to meet our God. Now for the unbeliever, the day that they prepare to meet their God will be a day where he will say, depart from me, ye work of iniquity, I never knew you where there will be eternal weeping and gnashing of teeth in the place where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. But what for we? What for we who are in Christ and yet are still warned that there is coming a day when the Lord will judge His people? The sheer severity of these warnings related to God judging His people are hard to reconcile with simply the idea that this is stepping out, of, out, out of, uh, into carnality or out of the Spirit. It's even hard to reconcile with the promise in Thessalonians that we are not appointed unto wrath. And yet here we are nevertheless. A warning in Hebrews 10 that the Lord will judge His people. Most of you are familiar with this, but I take you to 1 Corinthians 3 where Paul is writing as well and he writes this. For other foundation can no man lay than that is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if any man build upon this foundation gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, stubble, every man's work shall be made manifest for the day shall declare it. Because it is revealed by fire and that fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. If any man's work abide, which he hath built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. If any man's work shall uh, be Burned, he shall suffer loss, but he himself shall be saved, yet so as by fire. So Paul is speaking to a particular subset of people here, described in verse 11 as those whose foundation is Jesus Christ. Other foundation can no man lay but that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. We are not talking about the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 3. And we know we're not talking about the unbeliever in 1 Corinthians 3 because it begins with talking about those who have laid their foundation in Jesus. So you have laid your foundation in Jesus, Christian. You have laid no other foundation than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then you started building. And you started building gold, silver, and precious stones. Things which pleased the Lord. Things which will not pass away. Things which will carry over into heaven. And then something happened. Maybe like the kind of Bashan. You became bored, fat, and lazy. Right? That's been kind of a theme in Amos. Maybe you got frustrated. Maybe you got distracted. Maybe you got offended. Maybe you got a hurt. And then the Lord began to impress upon you the need to get right with Him. The need to step and walk in virtue. The need to walk in the Spirit. And you didn't do it. And you stepped into darkness rather than into light. And you started building upon that foundation wood, hay, and stubble. Things that will surely burn up. Things that will not last in eternity. Things which have no spiritual value. Things done outside of faith. Things defined by self, defined by carnality. Paul then looks forward to the day of judgment. When your building is complete... You have, laid on, you, you, you have received that foundation which is Jesus Christ and you spent your life building upon that foundation things out of gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble. And on the day of judgment, the fearful day in which we fall into the hands of the living God, the day that God will judge His people, the fire of God's judgment falls upon that, bod- that, that, that building that we have built upon the foundation. That is Christ. See, all of that stuff, all that wood, hay, and stubble that I built on top of that foundation, there's no way that I can rebuild the foundation, right? There's no new foundation. I can't just come over to another one and say, you know what? I really built an awful lot of wood, hay, and stubble over here on this one, so I'm just going to start a new foundation. Uh-uh. Foundation is laid one time. The minute you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you sin willfully after you've received of the gift, there is no second crucifixion. There is no second manner of, 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 of cleansing you of your sin. Your foundation is laid, you're building, and you're accountable for that. You're accountable for what is built thereon. And whatever is not of faith, whatever is wood, hay, and stubble, will simply burn. And that is how we reconcile a fearful day of judgment with the fact that we are not appointed under wrath, but to be saved. That there's coming a day when, the, when God's judgment will fall upon the things, the choices that you've made, the places you went, the things you've done, whether they are in faith or whether they are not in faith, and it will fall upon that. And everything that was not done in faith will burn and you will suffer loss. And so grave is this loss that we have this manner of description in Hebrews chapter 10. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. A certain fearful looking for of judgment. That is how Paul describes that day for believers when the fire of God's wrath will fall upon our works in this life. And some might even be sitting here saying, well, okay, I get you, Pastor. I'm, I'm following you now. Foundation laid Jesus Christ, building stuff upon it. Fire of God's judgment falls, burn some stuff up. I've got a little bit left over. I don't have a whole lot left over. Okay, but you know what? Here's the thing. I get to go to heaven, right? I mean, as long as I get to go to heaven, foundation's secure, so I'm, I'm good. What does it really matter? Is it really that big of a deal? Yes, it is. Say, well, Pastor, prove it. We just read it in Hebrews 10. That's what Hebrews 10 is saying. Well, pastor, here's the thing. Hebrews 10 doesn't give me, it doesn't peel back the curtain and tell me what that day is going to look like. No, but it does tell you that that day will be fearful. For the one who is done despite to grace. It will be a fearful day. Well, pastor, I mean, there's a lot of things that I'm afraid of, but I get to go to heaven yeah, but here's the thing. You want that day to be a day where you have gold, silver, and precious stones on that foundation. It must not be enough, Christian. It must not be enough for us that we enter into glory. It must matter to you. On, on, on the authority of the Word of God, it must matter to you how you enter in. It must matter for this reason alone because the Bible tells us it matters. Last time in Amos 3, we went to Luke 12. This time we go to Hebrews 10. Both times we're dealing with metaphors. We're dealing with warnings, but we're not dealing with any direct. I mean, with, 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 with the unbeliever in hell in the lake of fire, it's, it's pretty clear, right? Separation, darkness, torment, I'm tormented in this flame, right? The rich man of Lazarus. We, we get a pretty vivid picture of what that looks like. We don't get as vivid a picture of what the judgment of, of, of the Lord upon his own looks like. We get a picture of a building and the fire falls on that building and, and whatever's burned up, we suffer loss. And maybe it's appropriate that we don't have as vivid a picture of what that day looks like because there's no comparing the two. Right? There's no comparing suffering loss to eternity in the lake of fire. But that doesn't mean it shouldn't matter to you. By faith, we must understand that that day matters to us. It ought to matter to us. Once again, I can't tell you all of what that means. I can't tell you, nor can my heart and mind even personally comprehend, how much this must matter to God, considering how often Jesus, particularly in Luke, and Paul warns us about that day and calls us to live in light of that day so that God would inspire in Paul such forceful language related to the principles of obedience that we read in Hebrews chapter 10. So forceful is that language that generations of Christians have had a very, very difficult time reconciling how it is God's not talking about you losing your salvation here. That's how forceful that language is. But we rest in confidence God is not saying you can lose your salvation. We've reconciled through 1 Corinthians 3 why it is that we can theologically be confident that we're not losing our salvation But that doesn't change the force of the language, does it? And what that means to us is that this really matters to God. The language is there. The warnings are there. And the only way I can reconcile them is to insist with the Scriptures that the manner in which you and I enter into the kingdom ought to matter to us. So that if you see the loving hand of God's chastening in your life, if you are experiencing that loving hand of chastening and you explore this and you search God on this, knowing that God chastens his children to get their attention, to show them their problems, to to sanctify them so that they can solve those problems. If you see this chastening and you harden yourself to it, like Israel did in Amos' day, know that you are in a dangerous place playing a dangerous game. Because hard hearts in Amos' day led to hard days. And it is no different for our day. Know that the escalating hand of God's chastening will continue in your life until you repent and relent of your hard heart. Know that hard hearts bring hard days. And every day you harden your heart against the authority of God is a day that you will answer for it, at least in judgment. And quite likely in your day-to-day life as you live before God. And it is indeed a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so we come to our solution. And to be quite honest, our our solution will be next week. Next week's sermon. But I'm going to give you a little sneak peek. The solution that we're going to see from Amos chapter 5 is this. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. Repent. Realign with the Word of God. Step out of darkness into light. Step out of chastening into blessing. Step into the grace that God supplies specifically to those who rest in His humility. And may that be a proper description of each one of us this evening. That we are determined to obey. Eager for the blessings that are found therein. Not going to Bethel or Gilgal that we may multiply our transgressions through some sort of uh, backhanded or, 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 or marginal... Um, acknowledgement of God's authority only to continue along our hard-hearted path, but rather ever watchful and fearfully so about continuing in sin that grace may abound, knowing that in doing so, we position ourselves for that day of fearful judgment. And may we instead position ourselves for a day of blessing to the glory of God and for our best good.